This episode is brought to you by Secret Doors. Maintaining your privacy as a homeowner is a huge challenge in modern life. You can cover your entire front door with no soliciting signs, but you'll still probably get a college student with a list of magazines for sale showing up to violate your me time. Uh, didn't you see the beware a dog sign? Yeah, but I didn't see any dog. I just wanted to tell you, you should do something about that. Oh, and also I wanted to give you a chance to sign this uh, reckless, dim-witted petition. Secret Doors was started with the goal to make your front door completely undiscoverable by salesmen, uninvited relatives, and officers of the court. You'll chuckle with smug superiority while you watch those domestic invaders wander around your yard looking in vain for the front of your house. And when you order, use the promo code RERED, one word, to try their new product, Secret Trap Doors. They maintain your house's street appeal by gracefully concealing the man traps in your yard and gardens, whether bungee spikes, tiger pit, or shark tank. And thank you, Secret Doors, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning, the following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hi, Craig. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm pretty good. Not bad. We're getting close to being on a slightly more regular schedule. Yeah, we're trying. And, you know, we were talking about the, I think the break did us good. I think to some extent we were getting lost pretty much in the weeds of these chapters. And we still have a lot of, yeah, we still have a lot of chapters to go too. So that's not good. But given me and it's given you, I think you said a chance to, kind of think about these chapters and think about Jonas and mull them over and maybe come up with some personal theories. Yeah. And kind of step back to like, that's after having done this, you know, sort of week after week for so long now, it's sort of, you, you, some of it gets sort of habitual and you're like, oh, I don't want it to be habitual anymore. I actually want to be like surprised <laughs> by things in the story. So, so it's been good to kind of have really, I guess, almost like, I mean, apart from little things here and there, like a couple months to, to kind of get my head out of New Sun and then kind of yeah. come back to it. So, Well, Claus always daunted me, though. I knew that it was going to be like this. I knew when we got to the antechamber, it was going to be. Yeah. What the heck? I knew when we got to the tale of the student and his son that there's just so much. I'm not even sure how we're exactly at this time, how we're going to address it. When we get to the play, oh, when we get to the play. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot of dense confusion in Claw. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. And speaking speaking of sort of dense confusion, we should note that, and and I think we say this in the beginning of the actual chapter, but we are gonna uh, we're we're skipping a chapter. We're obviously skipping. If you looked at the title of this one, we're skipping Student and the Sun to go to chapter eighteen so that we can finish Jonas's story, then come back to student and his son. Right. Um, and just because I think that actually it'll, it makes a little more sense for Jonas if we don't just 
interrupt it with this grand thing and the story's possible connections to Jonas, I think will make more sense if we can kind of finish that part first. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I think it does have connections to Jonas, but I don't think we're ever going to settle on where he is precisely placed in it. Yeah. Yeah. But we just, we made that choice partly because it seemed to make more sense in terms of sort of explaining things and from a spoiler filled direction. Um, and also it just gave us a little more time to work on <laughs> the Brown <Book> story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. So let's see, we got a lot of new comments after our episode, uh, just like us, people were not done talking about Jonas on Facebook, Ori Kowarski called our last episode magisterial and worth the wait. Uh, I certainly hope it was worth the wait, but I would be surprised if I could, if it could support magisterial. Yeah, I didn't feel exactly magisterial. <laughs> but Ori likes but thank the, you for that. <laughs> oh, yes. Thanks, Ori. Ori likes the theory that Jonas, like Severian, is the result of the integration of two different intelligences or souls. But Jonas is coming apart of the seams. One of Jonas's constituencies has fallen head over heels with Jolenta. The other has been shocked into the realization that he has wasted Chiliads in the disassociative and passive wanderings that serve to mask his trauma from himself and themselves. The two parts have become self-aware and can no longer act in concert. That is why we don't ever get a reunion with Jonas. The act of becoming sane and whole, by definition, means that the Jonas entity must cease to exist. And yeah, that's that's probably in line with my interpretation as well. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about something in this chapter that yeah, kind of very gets similar a little bit. Yeah. I think so. Um, something you said in our last episode really clicked with Mike Farrar. Are your arms from me? He says, up till now, I've stuck to my theory that Jonas's bio bits lusted after Jolenta. Well, Robo Jonas, it misinterprets lust for love. But thanks to Craig, I'm now convinced that the robot couldn't feel love or any real emotions until he's transformed by Severian's power. And even after the transformation, the robot is able to keep the human's emotions in check until his series of physical and psychic traumas. The bioparts came alive again when he met Severian, his unconscious use of the new sun power. The robot is now feeling real emotions instead of simulated ones, and gone from a robot aping being a man to a hybrid being with warring imperatives. Find the Herodules so he can remove the bioparts versus become fully human so he can woo Jolenta. The robot hates the bio parts, but but in so much mental turmoil, feelings he, he's feeling are so much more intense, more real. He wants so badly to experience human love and human passion with Jolenta that he's been driven insane. This is another blow to robot Jonas as his taste of human emotions has finally driven home the point that Robo, not the bio, is the inferior creation. Yeah. That's that's an interesting uh, elaborate theory. Is that is that what you're saying, Craig? Um, I don't think so exactly. I think what he's getting in is more the the drama side of things. But then I think which is cool, um, and I think that's what I was saying. Where I would probably go a different direction is I don't I don't necessarily see a a really big split in Wolf between like a robot not being passionate and um, you know a human having passions. I mean, I I could be wrong. Um, but it's like, especially when we, there are other ones, other stories too, where it's, it's pretty clear that robots 
can be people and can have emotions and and morality and you know all those sort of things that we normally think are fully human so i i just don't know um because i i keep coming back to sidero and sidero definitely saying oh no we're moral too we have you know we we just can't deceive ourselves about about things that we want to be moral so there's so robots aren't just calculating machines like it, it in this world it seems like they're definitely capable of the full range of human emotions and experiences so i don't know i don't know but if you wanted to say that what's driving him crazy here is that he was a robot who couldn't really feel before then yeah i think the way mike describes it is really good hope that doesn't hope that makes sense hope that makes sense mike as far as what part i i like and where i might go in a slightly different way also in uh reddit uh ka1982 it says uh somewhat half-baked idea what if what's triggering Jonas is something in the antechamber, maybe the name of the navigator being wrong, that made him realize he wasn't just wandering around in an unrecognizable far future, but that he was actually in the wrong universe entirely and had fallen into an earlier carnation of the universe, an alternate timeline that might account for the severity of his reaction. I don't think this entirely squares with everything else. Surely there would have been other oddities that he would have noted, that he would have noticed. But I do find it slightly more compelling than he figured out something that should have been obvious for centuries. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good, good shot at that one. Yeah. And especially the way he kind of says, no, this is Earth. You know, it's almost like, yeah, he he realizes something he knew before, but he didn't really know exactly how he, what it meant or something. I mean, that that would be cool. I mean, it'd be like... <laughs> Yeah, be like showing up and being like, "Oh no, I'm I'm still in <laughs> Indiana, but it's but it's a different Indiana or something." <laughs> yeah. yeah. Also on Reddit, uh, Patrick McAvoy Halston talks about why Jonas is so you know in need of escape and um, talks a lot about how what he's getting at there is that sense of being sort of terrified by people who choose slavery and the whole idea of you know staying here where it's safe because slavery is easier than freedom which is kind of what what severian kind of assumes that they'll do patrick points out that what jonas's reaction may really be is sort of him realizing that that's what's going on there and maybe even being afraid of that feeling in himself and so really wanting to break out of that and so he he also talks about how what seems different between jonas and severian is that severian isn't destroyed by this and so he seems stronger but jonas seems possibly more tempted by something like that and i think there is something of that i mean i think that's definitely part of what's being played at there i guess for me the question is like why does that affect jonas so much like like why does that seem like such a a shock to him i mean it's something that you know i definitely can see why anyone would be you know disturbed by people doing that, but why Jonas in particular? Like, what is it about his background that maybe we're supposed to understand that makes him more vulnerable to that than Severian? And that's really what I what I don't know. But I do agree with with Patrick that that's definitely definitely one of the things that that Jonas is severely reacting to. One thing about this particular reading is that's very inviting is the fact that Jonas himself talks about the you know the the devolution of of liberty into tyranny, right? Yeah. So he's, yeah, he, he is keying on that in some way. So that, I mean, this interpretation is inviting in that way. I'm not sure I see it, but 
it is it, it makes it would at least tie that long discussion that Jonas has. Yeah, the political discussion. Yeah, then sort of say why it, it's so emotional. And, and it's because, yeah, you can see that in I think we can all see that in ourselves in certain ways, like when you just you take the safe option rather than than doing something else. But yeah, so I, I totally agree that that's part of what's affecting him there. Um, I just want to know why. Yeah. You know, like why, why is, why does Jonas feel so terrified and susceptible? Right. Um, yeah. To that? yeah. Uh, let's see. So Stephen Fruit. And I can do the truth. He has a lot of things to say about our conversations on the equivalencies between Hathor and Severian. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, he seems to have a lot of knowledge about torture. And, you know, granted, he's a torture fanboy. But he also, you know, ascends <laughs> Talos's stage like a guild member. And, well, you know, a lot of his connections are like, well, a bullet designed for me, particularly, because his paracoita has violet eyes and a reference to doves that is unique to Thea. And now that I believe Hathor killed Yosebi, I also believe he has Gurlow's deadly poisonous aphrodisiac. However, Stephen Frug notes one big problem is that he can't be a version of Severian because there's no implosion when he gets close to Severian. And that's true. He includes mm-hmm. Marubius in this, uh, that Marubius surely got close to Severian as well. Well, you know, the answer to the second is that we have no evidence of how close he ever got physically to Severian. In the case of Hathor, however, yeah, I think there would be a lot of explaining to do for him to simply be Severian. Still, still, Craig, it's not a slam dunk, not for me. Although a Quaster Severian near the end of Earth and New Sun is worried about being close to his parallel if he comes back to life, there's enough evidence that we don't really know much about how that process works. Why, for example, is there only an implosion risk when the physical body of Apupunchao is alive rather than when his dead physical body is right there. This is not going to be a problem for, at all for people who see this book as leaning more toward fantasy than science fiction, as I do, or that Wolf is more interested in metaphor than plot mechanics. But that troubles me a great deal. Stephen's conclusion is that Hathor cannot be an earlier Severian, nor Marubius, nor any of the other they are all Severian candidates. And I think Stephen has the high ground on that point. However, Wolf is really tricky, as I said on that post. I will say, though, that I am absolutely convinced that Wolf went out of his way to make Heather very similar to Sabine yeah, in yeah. a certain way. So we can talk about why. Like, is that more for... Uh, thematic or metaphorical thing like is it that is that what disturbs Severian so much about him is seeing someone who's so much like him in certain ways Mm -hmm. but so depraved you know yeah but yeah so there's there's all kinds of reasons why Wolf could have intentionally done that 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 aren't just or ways to make him be Severian he has a lot of tools at his hand which brings me to a conversation in the thread of Stephen's post with Finnegan Matthews. He responded to the post saying, I've been toying with the theory that Hathor is a gibber who consumed one of the Severians on the ship, along with some Alzabo extract. It would seem to account for his broken and confused memory patterns, why he knows so much about the methods of torture and violet-eyed women without matching Severian's physical description, sort of a demonic alien spirit personality to Jonas's more benign cyborg doubling. 
Plus, I believe the first mention we get of the word Alzabo is in comparing it to Hathor's muttering and sputtering to the sound of an animal devouring a carcass. And Craig, that's absolutely true. In the final chapter of Shadow, when the acting troop encounters Hathor, Severian writes, Dorcas, I feel sure, was too repelled by him to hear much of what he said. She turned aside as one turns from the mutterings and cracking of bones when an Alzabo savages a carcass. So, Craig, I suggested, I didn't really mean anything serious, that in that case, maybe Hathor ate everyone on the ship the same way. And that's why he says in that same chapter, I understand more than you think. I, the old captain, the old lieutenant, the old cook in his old kitchen cooking soup. Hmm. To which Finnegan doubled down on the potential connections. This connection was apparently suggested by Will Aikman. <laughs> and I couldn't find a reference to it in the Earth list at first, but then I did find it. Peter Stevenson, 1998, brings it up. No one picks it up. It just lays there. And the reference is The Yarn of the Nancy Bell, 1866 by W.S. Gilbert. A lot of people are, are talking about the rhyme of the ancient mariner in relation to Hathor. It's often cited on the Earth list, I, but I, I didn't remember this one. Had to go looking. Its theme and rhyme scheme do suggest that it's intended as a humorous ditty that's parodying Coleridge's poem. Mm -hmm. Yep. But the thing is, it's about a shipwrecked crew who eat each other one by one until only one is left who is fortuitously rescued after eating the cook. Mm -hmm. And it actually has this line. Oh, I am a cook and a captain bold and the mate of the Nancy Brig and a bosun tight and a midship might and the crew of the captain's gig. Okay. Listen, your mileage may vary, but I do think this is part of Hathor's backstory. He's eaten his entire ship and perhaps one of them was a torturer and might theoretically have been some version of Severian. I don't know how this relates to Jonas, but I find it a highly credible theory that <laughs> Hathor ate the crew out there lost between the stars. <laughs> and I think that this kind of weird little smaller, you know, minor poem uh, that's kind of funny and kind of a sea shanty. That's Wolf's kind of thing. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of thing he would know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, Definitely. all the pirate freedom. And he talks about love and pirate books. And I mean, this isn't pirates, but yeah, it's, yeah, right. it's sea adventure. So... Yeah, I I mean, we can't can't prove it, but that it would not surprise me at all if Wolf had this in mind. And and the sort of craziness that it's yeah. told, um, it's definitely not the same. It's not the same rhythm that Heather speaks in. You know, it's not the same. It's not, you know, mm -hmm. and, and by the way, that keeps reminding me, I need to go check and see if Heather's speech is actually metrical or not. I always forget, <laughs> but I keep meaning to do that. Uh, and it's certainly not like this. Like this is, there is some kind of meter, but it's not a, yeah, yeah. But it's, but this is, um, this is very sing-songy, this piece, mm -hmm. um, you know, that yeah. he does. But yeah, it is so cool that there's that there. And there, the joke is metaphorical about, you know, I am the cook and I am the whatever. Yeah. Here, though, it's, you know, it might <laughs> be with, with what we know the Alzabo does, it is not. Right. Exactly is true. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I like this. I think this is a really cool find. And again, can't, can't prove it, but... 
it's so so promising so it's so inviting yeah for for that theory oh yeah yeah, yeah that it it just oh it puts it it brings so many good things together the lexicon earth is cites valeria's uh reference mangled reference from the shakespeare's 12th night and i think this is as solid as that yeah i mean it's we know that wolf loves to mix high and low culture get a little shakespeare get a little, right. little cheesy poetry a little dog girl <laughs> in there as well yeah yeah, let's see. Uh, Stephen notes something uh, important that we glossed over in chapter 15. Uh, Severian says, Somewhere among the swirling worlds I am soon to explore, there lives a race like and yet unlike the human. That was in, uh, I guess, chapter six, 15? Chapter 15. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen notes that this seems to be the first foreshadowing that Severian will go to space after he finishes this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like the first Severian, he's going to pass beyond the candles of the night. Yeah. Big miss on our part, I think. Nice catch on Stevens. Yep. Yep. And it's one thing we should have talked about is why this chapter, like why is this the spot where he wants to bring that up? And I mean, I I think the, some of the things that lead to are the, the idea there of transcendence, I think is the big thing that like, we're talking about these sort of perfect creatures that, that remind him of, of something else. And, um, and there is a whole sort of veneer of transcendence there of seeing something that's higher and more, more beautiful than, and only getting a kind of image of it here. Um, but then also telling us, you know, like going to space is in a lot of ways for Severian talked through this whole book as if it's, yeah, a kind of transcendent experience. There's that whole play. I mean, so much of Earth of New Sun is all about that play between going to another universe, also being like having a religious experience and and trying to come back and forth between the two worlds. So, um, yeah. So it, it totally makes sense that that's a good place for it. And yep, we should have talked more about yeah. it. Uh, yeah. And finally, you know, I'm a little surprised. He says we didn't bring up the giant bronze statue that Hephaestus built to protect the island of Crete. A bad on us. It's called Talos. Uh, yeah, we should have brought yeah. that up, and I'm surprised we didn't. Yep. Steven says, I can see why Wolf didn't mention that statue's name, since it would have been confusing, since its name is Talos. But the idea of the statue guardian seems like it inspired these creatures. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And yet, for Wolf to know that he had beings like this in the story, why did he give Dr. Talos that name? I was thinking about that, too, when he said it. And actually, I think it's it's a very kind of Wolfian thing that you have these images of these true guardian things that are there. Talos is Dr. Talos is very much serving that kind of purpose for Baldanders, but he's a lesser version of it. Mm. I think, you know, he's a, he's a maybe more flawed. He's more cynical. He's also serving Baldanders who is, you know, very sort of all focused on self. So it's a very kind of wolf thing to name the lesser version as a sort of direct illusion and to have the, the, I guess, the more pure version, the, the one that's higher up and closer to the end creates true, <laughs> true meaning, um, be a little harder to identify. Uh, that, that, that does seem like an appropriately Wolfian thing to do. Perhaps. And yet, you know, these statues and Dr. Talos both have a large paragraph of Severian just musing about them about their origins and where they came from. And in both cases, I find it mysterious and strange, and I don't know what to make of it. And I, one thing that is true about him too, is that with the statues, he talks about them as sort of otherworldly inscrutable, as if they're 
they're from some more beautiful version of humanity, but they don't have common human emotions. They have more inscrutable emotions. Dr. Talos, when he describes him, is like a fox mask mm-hmm. that's like partially dead, right, yeah. but also partially, but also appear apparent seeming to be alive right and then so more deceptive too so you still kind of get those two different versions where where both are hiding something one may be hiding something in order to deceive you but the other thing may be hiding something just because you have to develop before you can actually understand what it is or or learn more or, or become even just get out to space to see the other creatures or something you know i don't know but yeah. but it yeah it's uh, there's lots of sort of thematic differences I can see there for why he would do that. Um, well, is Talos a kind of Dr. Talos? Is he a kind of statue? I think so. I mean, it's an artificial. I mean, you know, it, if we assume that we kind of came to the idea that maybe these um, these statues on House Absolute are being controlled remotely. Yeah. yeah. Does that suggest that Dr. Talos is also a statue that's being controlled remotely by some other being somewhere yeah, else? Yeah, and that I don't know about. Um, I think for me, what connects it is the sort of, instead of it being just like a statue or a robot, they both kind of go back to the idea of a golem, which is like a, a an artificial man that is, or a statue basically, that's given some kind of life. It's not given a soul, but it becomes animate. And they both seem to operate on that principle. And so that's kind of like an older sense of what a robot is. Like not a, Mm. you know, a golem would be different from a robot because a golem is kind of like a creature that's halfway between a living thing and a non-living thing. Whereas a robot is a machine, um, you know, and and it's a simulation of life. So, um, but a golem really does have some kind of life to it. And I feel like that's what both the statues and Dr. Talus are like, that the kind of sense of, of what these Android-ish things are is more like a golem than like a typical robot. I feel like so. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And and to me, that's what the the Talus story has often been like. Yeah. Well, there we go. And you know, as always, we could make an entire show of these comments, but we do actually have to do these chapters. <laughs> so. Yes, and we have we have things to say about Jonas. We need to we need to. Yeah, we are not done with Jonas yeah. either. So. have new patrons to thank so first we have one new journeyman this time ryan lavery thank you very much we also have three new patrons at the master level first ryan whitus what is the cotton feeling sharp as a knife brian merrick oh my rick james behavior and spencer stepniewski As always, we are so appreciative of the support through Patreon that helps us keep this thing going and pays for the costs and just makes us feel loved. So, all right. Well, like I said, we're skipping over Student in the Sun. So if you are all gearing up ready for that on this next one, next time. (laughs) But but for right now. Yeah, hopefully. (laughs) If we get everything done. Uh, But we're going to finish Jonas's story first right now. So we are still in the entertainment. And here we've been, you know, kind of just sitting around, not really moving, go anywhere. This seems like the last 
forever we've been stuck in this anti it's time to get moving craig it's time to move on see the bigger world yep and go find eventually strange people hiding in closets that's what we're always moving forward (laughs) chapter 18 mirrors as we mentioned in the comments, we're skipping chapter 17, the yes, tale, indeed. yeah, the, the tale of the student and his son, because it's hard and because we're kind of busy in real life right now. And because it just, you know, makes sense to finish off Jonas's story. Right. Yeah. And we're not going to leave it forever. We're not no, saying we're no, just not going to try. No, we're, we'll be, we're going to cycle right back soon. to it next time. Right. And it might be that the tale relates to Jonas somehow, that he's in that story, if it were properly understood. But if that's the case, we'll have to, you know, we'll have just good a chance of understanding how he fits in with his entire story under our belt. So let's just stipulate that at the end of chapter 16, as Severian watched over Jonas as he recuperated from the whipping he got from the young exultants, Severian chose a story at random from the Brown book and read it to Jonas, right? Yep. Yeah, reading to people is one of the joys of my life. I think that's common for a lot of people who like to read. Severian is like that, too. He and Thecla read stories to each other from this book. And Mm -hmm. Severian has read the story at this point. And now the plot of this little, of this time in the antechamber continues. So what about, let's see, we got the title. We got the title of this chapter. The mirrors. mirrors. Yeah. Everyone knows where this is going. We're going to Father Aniri's mirror chamber. And if you're a first time reader, then you've heard about this place in chapter 20 and 21 of Shadow. And now you're going to see it. And this and the story, the cat, is the only time we're going to see it. Although uh, the botanical gardens employ mirror technology. And in my opinion, you know, the Lake of Birds is a massive mirror used by the Kamehameha perhaps piggybacking on Aniri's mirror technology. And now I'm starting to wonder how Severian can meet the Kamehameha just north of House Absolute when the purpose of the Garden of Indus Sleep is for the Autark to talk to the Kamehameha on the other side of the planet. I don't know. I have to keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. And we're, we don't discount the fact that just might mean that she isn't on the other side. People are lying all the time or they've got the wrong story. Yeah, that's true. Maybe she's not. So, so we are going to see the mirrors. The one thing, and we'll talk about this later too, but is that we say we're going to see the mirrors, but we're not really going to get a whole lot more detail about it. No, no, no. Frustrating. Yeah. And so Darian kind of does his thing where I, I'm assuming the way it goes is he doesn't really know how to describe what he's looking at. (laughs) And so he just doesn't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which honestly is probably a little more realistic than, you know, most science fiction things where all of a sudden you're going to get crazy detail. And let me explain the whole history of this Plymouth Allaire. I put it in the gear, which was built in 1967. Mm -hmm. Right. Anyway, we are still the day after Severian and Jonas got arrested by the Praetorians and were put in the antechamber. And they actually arrived here after the second meal was delivered. So it's like maybe you know, 15 hours since they arrived. I'm not mm-hmm. going to try to log the specific number of days that Severian left the tower. Uh, we're probably a bit less than two weeks, crazy as that sounds, mm-hmm. uh, with yeah. only three or four days not detailed that Jonas and Severian traveled from Vodalus's camp and the 18 to 36 hours between Piteous Gate 
and Severian waking up in the inn in Saltus. So let us begin, Craig. All right. All right. So Severian says, as I read this idle tale, I looked at Jonas from time to time. This is part of why I think the story has to do with Jonas. And anyway, he says that while he read, he, quote, never saw the least flicker of expression on his face, though he did not sleep. Mm-hmm. So I think Jonas definitely recognizes the parts of this story that mesh with uh, a, the Greek story of Theseus. That's mm-hmm. That much is obvious. Yeah. Uh, remember that the tale of the student and his son is jumbled with the story of Theseus. And in that story, Theseus left with black sails. And if he returned, he was living, he was supposed to replace them with the with the sails that were white. And his father, Aegeus, would know that way that he was coming home. But Theseus was, you know, as dumb a hero as Severian often is. <laughs> and he forgot to have them swap out the sails. And when Aegeus saw the black sails, he threw himself off a cliff. And that happened at the end of the tale of the student and his son. But this story omits the part where the hero promises to fly the white sails. So Severian does with Jonas what you and I do with this book, when Wolf seems to omit something important. And, you know, someone should have put a mic between them. (laughs) Severian says, I'm not certain I understand why the student at once assumed his son was dead when he saw the black sails. The ship the ogre sent had black sails, but it came only once a year and he had already come. And Jonas says, I know. <laughs> and Severian records his voice held a flatness I had not heard before. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. It's a he says, I know, but it it really means something, right? Because his voice has changed significantly when he says it. That's I don't know. When I read a book, that's what I, I think that's what that's meaning. That it means something. It means it doesn't just mean, yeah, I know. It means I know. But but what he knows, what does he know? Yeah, that's right. And, and Severian brings that up in the next part because right. about how to interpret that, right? That's that's the big thing that, that comes up here. But I also think, too, that point about Jonas not reacting at all, like that's, yeah, yeah. that's obviously a big change, too, because he's exactly been yeah. attentive and listening and all that kind of stuff. But here he's just... Well, he doesn't have yeah. to pay attention. He knows this story. <laughs> it could be a sad story for him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He, he knows all the back stuff yeah. going on. And I, yeah, I want to put my cards on the table. I think Jonas recognizes this story from personal experience. I think he's in this story. And I think that's why Severian ended up reading it at random. So Severian, as you say, he, he says, when you say I know, do you mean you know the answers to those questions? And Jonas just says nothing for a long time. Jonas just sitting there with his back to the wall. But he can talk because finally the little girl says, that must be a really old story. And Jonas replies to that. He says, yes, it is a very old story. And the hero had told the king, his father, that if he failed, he would return to Athens with black sails. So once again, Jonas acknowledges that he does know the story of Theseus. And I think it's been a consensus that that's all the story means to him. For the most part, yeah, I think that's people don't really get into what that is about Jonas himself. It's more just that, yeah, he knows the myth. Right. Um, And we certainly know from this that, yeah, he does, because when he mentions Athens, he mentions it in a way that suggests that he knows 
the history, knows the context. He knows, you know, more than just that Athens was the name of the city in the story. Mm-hmm. So I think that, yeah, we're, we're supposed to think here. The Athens isn't mentioned in the city, in the story. He's, he's drawing that connection, right? Oh, right, 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 right. Yep. And so he knows the full context, it seems like. But that also gets back to that question about when, uh, I mean, the, the way that Severian is asking about him knowing, like, what does it mean when he says, I know it? Like, do you mean you know the answers to my questions or do you really know what's going on? Or do you just mean, I know it's weird. He doesn't answer that. Yeah. He doesn't clarify exactly what he means in the same way that Jonas knowing about the story doesn't really clarify exactly how he knows this. We know he said before, right. That he had the, the ship's computer read him Mm -hmm. Greek stories or that the, the ship decided to read him Greek stories. Um, so at least we know that. And also Alice in Wonderland, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. So we know he's got this history here, um, but we don't really know why he, why he knows it. Also, the thing that should stand out is that what pops him out here is that he says that uh, it's answering the little girl's question about it being an old story, mm-hmm. that that's what yeah. wakes him up. The, the idea that a whole lot of time has passed again, like that's what, that's what what he'll, he decides to yeah. respond to. Well, for Severian's part, he just finds the answer weird. And I think it is weird. And, you know, that's a very Wolfian way where someone asks a question and then he contrives for them not to ever answer it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Yep. So it is weird. And he and Severian finds it weird because there's no mention of Athens in the story, like we said, and or the promise is so to him, he figures, even at the time of writing, that Jonas might have been delirious, even at this later date. So we get some foreshadowing because Severian says, it was almost the last thing I heard Jonas say. And that's the only reason he records it. And for the same reason, he transcribed the story that he read to him. <laughs> yeah, yep. And so that's just another point that we're going to, this is almost kind of like a farewell Mm -hmm. chapter to Jonas. That's also the part of the Theseus story they decide to focus on is the part where it's the end, but also where someone's coming back from a long journey. We know that in some ways it might be that Jonas is ending his journey by finally being back in touch with the mirrors that he can go back wherever it was he was originally from. Right. Um, So there's that connection to something about the end of a long journey. Um, and, but then also the, maybe a missed message in that, or some kind of corrupted message that Theseus was giving the wrong message to his dad. And here we have Jonas, who's no longer his you know, whole self right. that he yeah. used to be. So maybe that's, we don't know anything about the Hyrodules or if he was supposed to be, you know, what his job was or anything like that. But there is this idea that this this person is messed up. He can't communicate something like he's supposed to. Yeah, so they try to get Jonas to talk, but he, you know, he won't. So they just give up, and Severian spends the rest of the days just sitting next to him. After a watch or so, one or two hours, Hathor shows up. And Severian says he figured, you know, his quote, his small store of wit had soon been exhausted by the prisoners. <laughs> Which is weird to me because Heather seems like he could talk and talk and talk and talk if he wants to, right? He yeah. does. It does. Well, well, he's the Severian says I'm not tra- yeah. transcribing that. Yep. <laughs> and this is, by the way, is the last we're going to see of Hathor. 
right? This here's something important. This is the last we're going to see of Jonas until maybe sometime when Severian. Well, last time we're going to see him, but Severian kind of talks to Jonas in uh, the beginning of Citadel of the Autark, and this is the last time we're going to see Hathor until Severian's captured by Vodalus, right? I think that's right. Yeah, he doesn't see him in sword, does he? He doesn't see him in Thrax. He doesn't he just, no. just the no, no, he, gets... he just encounters the Salamander. Right. But he does see him. He does see him in the sky <laughs> in a dream later on. But I guess dreams don't count. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, he's like he's staring over. Okay, if you want to count that. <laughs> but I just think, I think it's meaningful that mm-hmm. this chapter, they both disappear at the same time. It's kind of in the same way, to me, it means something that Severian loses his sword and the claw in the same, mm-hmm. at the same I like moment. That connection. I don't know what to do with it, but I like it. Yeah. Mm. So anyway, like you said, he doesn't record what Hathor says. However, he immediately relates that he talked to Lomer and Nickery, and they got a place for Hathor to, to sit on the other side of the room. Instead of next to the door. Yeah. <laughs> Far away. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and, and Severian doesn't record uh, the second arrival of the pastries and coffee. Yeah. So Severian says, Whatever we may say, all of us suffer from disturbed sleep at times. Some, in truth, hardly sleep, though some who sleep copiously swear that they don't. Some are disquieted by incessant dreams, and a fortunate few are visited often by dreams of delightful character. Some will say they were at one time troubled in sleeping, but have recovered from it, as though awareness were a disease, as perhaps it is. My own case is that I usually sleep without memorable dreams, though I sometimes have them, as the reader who has gone this far with me will know, and seldom wake before morning. Yeah. Uh, you know, incidentally, uh, Wolf says that he tended to remember his dreams that he would sometimes rem- wake up knowing remembering like three or four of them and be able to d- discuss them you know li- much later in the day but you know that is interesting that severian who says he never forgets anything if he has dreams he doesn't remember them right no i know i've always thought that's weird and i've got big question marks written by that <laughs> in this, in this <laughs> part right here oh from, obviously from reading it another time where i was like oh but he doesn't remember that okay so why <laughs> but why does he not remember dreams like is there right yeah is what's significant about that and i mean yeah. it does seem like there ought to be something specific we could think about with dreams we've talked multiple times before about how in long and short sun dreams seem to be time travel mm-hmm. in a lot of ways but i don't feel like he's quite doing that in new sun all the time but yeah but what exactly is going on with dreams i think yeah. So yeah, let's let's count these dreams. We've had the dream in Saltus, but you know that's the only one that we've had so far, really. The other encounters with Malrubius after his exaltation and after the play, he asserts were not dreams. Uh, there was a dream of, with Baldanders, but again, you know that might have been sent by the Undines, or maybe it was a memory due to his closeness to Baldanders. I don't know. And also, he dreamed after he ate Thecla, or maybe that doesn't count as dreaming. And of course, there was the the vision or dying dream, whatever you call it, of mm-hmm. when he was drowning in the guile. <clears throat> but on this night, my sleep was so different from its usual nature that I've sometimes wondered if it should be called sleep at all. Perhaps it was some other state posing as sleep, as Alzabos, when they've eaten of men, pose as men. If it was the result of natural causes, I attribute it to a combination of unfortunate circumstances— 
I, who had all my life been accustomed to hard work and violent exercise, had for that day been confined without either. The tale from the Brown Book had affected my imagination, which was still more stimulated by the book itself and its associations with Thecla, and by the knowledge that I was now within the walls of the house absolute itself, of which I had heard her speak so often. Possibly most important, my thoughts were oppressed by worry for Jonas, and by the feeling, which had been growing on me all day, that this place was the end of my journey, that I would never reach Thrax, that I would never rejoin poor Dorcas, that I would never restore the claw, or even rid myself of it, that in fact the Increate, whom the owner of the claw had served, had decreed that I, who had seen so many prisoners die, should end my own life as one. <laughs> so, a couple of things. Uh, hard work and violent exercise. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, also, as you mentioned, most of this chapter is going to be about this sort of thing. He's yeah. talking about sleeping. He's yep. dreaming. He's waking up, going to sleep, waking up. It, when we start getting some action, it's going to be like that. Bang. Over. Yep. But this is another case where I wonder if what Severian is seemingly talking about in general is maybe a, a is really something we should be thinking about applying to Jonas and what's actually going on in the story. This whole thing about dreaming. I mean, I'm sure to Jonas, it seems like his life right now is probably like a weird dream. Um, yeah. You know, with this, the strange surreal reality that he feels like he's suddenly waking up to. So, yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it seems like that could be, or maybe, you know, another way to put it would maybe be he's been sleeping too long and that's why he's talks about, he's just waking up or he's just going a little sane just a little bit for the first time. All of these things could actually be ways to describe what Jonas is going through too. Yeah. And something else, he makes a reference to the conciliator that in fact, the increate whom the owner of the claw had served. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Which is really a cool way to think about it because it's, especially if you're thinking of the conciliator as a Christ figure, Mm -hmm. then this is really emphasizing a hierarchy of these kind of things, right? There's the increate on top, then there's the conciliator and then there's the claw and then there's humanity, right? Then there's Severian or whatever. And I think sometimes a lot of people don't necessarily, especially if you're, you know, traditional Christian, then, you know, Jesus is God and it's, it all kind of mushes together. Right. And it's all one thing, but this sense of a hierarchy fits a whole lot more with a lot of the ways, especially later that Wolf will talk about how things go, just especially the story later on when we talk about how, you know, even though the higher beings may be closer to God, it doesn't mean that they totally understand God, but there's still this like high, high, high hierarchy. Right. They're just guessing. They're just guessing at his intent. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, but there's also the implication that their guesses are better than our guesses, but it's still, you know, this, this world of, of things being differentiated by hierarchy, which is very different from a sort of, you know, everything is one with God kind of, kind of kumbaya right. <laughs> or something like that. So, but just, it's a small thing, but it, to emphasize that really does seem to, to create that sense of distance between right. Severian or whatever. Yeah. I slept, if it may be called sleep only for a moment, I had the sensation of falling a spasm, the instinctive stiffening of a victim cast from a high window wrenched all my limbs. Ah, being cast from a high window. We, we all know that what that's called. That's defenestration. Uh, it's an execution by being thrown out the window. And Severian has surely studied it, and he might have seen it done. 
Yeah. And uh, and that's exactly what he, he he describes it as a victim being thrown from a high window. And he, and he he's also going to be uh, tasked with performing that act on Syriaca after strangling her. But, mm-hmm. you know, I used to have those dreams myself where I was suddenly falling or falling out of bed all the time. And I just wrench awake over and over mm-hmm. again. And, and, you know, that's what's happening to Severian here. There was a period where I would bug Amber all the time because when I was falling asleep, I'd jerk. Like, it wouldn't be like in a dream and I'd do that, but it's like I would spasm like as I'm falling asleep. I don't know why, but it would just be, and it would wake me up too. And it's just like, <laughs> ah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I do that. Yeah. Emily remarks it all the time. I can tell you're falling asleep because your, your leg is kicking. Yeah. So. I would wake her up because they would be like full, full bed shakes. No, I, I never yeah. feel it. Never feel Oh, I but, do. I wake myself up too. But, yeah. So anyway, Severian is, he's using his Fulgian cloak as a blanket. And then he wakes up. He sees only darkness. He hears Jonas breathing, feels for him. And yeah, he's there sleeping, sitting up his back to the wall with, quote, his good hand behind his head. For Severian at this point, his good hand is probably his fleshy prosthetic. Yep. Yeah. But really... It, is it obvious which is the prosthesis anymore? Whether Jonas is a prosthesis for the the killed person in the wreck, or the killed person in the wreck is is Jonas's prosthesis? Right. Well, uh, I think we can figure out who it is for Severian because there's yeah. a specific scene later on where he says it switches. Right. Um, like to Severian right now, the bio person is still Jonas. Like right. This. That he, he hasn't connected all the dots yet um, because there's another point that'll come where when Jonas moves the mirrors, he said, and for the first time I saw which part of him was more natural to himself. And it was mm-hmm. obviously the robot. Right. Um, so here, yeah. What for him to say his natural hand to him means the bio hand. Absolutely. Yeah. Everything though, for Jonas is, is real. Oh yeah. Everything I think, I think the real, the real probably part of his panic right now is yeah. Not knowing which is real. And right. Real. So Severian tries to go back to sleep, but he's, you know, really just in that twilight phase. At other times, I found it pleasant, but it wasn't so now. I was conscious of the need for sleep and conscious that I was not sleeping, yet I was not conscious in the usual meaning of the term. I heard faint voices in the inn-yard and felt somehow that soon the bells of the campanile would chime and it would be day. My limbs jerked again, and I sat up. All right, so he's suddenly awake again. At first, he thinks he sees a flash of green fire, but no, nothing. He throws off his cloak blanket, and only at that moment is he aware that he's not back at the end. The green flash that he saw was the white of Jonas's right eye, which maybe implies that there's a faint glow behind Jonas's eyes, as you can see in absolute darkness. Yeah, it's the wording. Like, I went back and forth over this to decide what I think, and the wording doesn't exactly indicate it directly, right? But it's just that he can see the white of Jonas's eyes. So it's... Yeah. uh, Why would he see a green flash in his eye, in the white of his eye? Yeah. So I... Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's weird. It is very weird, but... um, But he can tell from Jonas's breathing that he's asleep. So I guess, you know, the eye is maybe open just a bit. Maybe it's always open when he sleeps. Could be. But yeah, that's another thing. Actually, I didn't, I didn't catch that. But yeah, so he's, Jonas is asleep, but his eyes are apparently open. So Partly open partly at least, open. yeah. Uh, Severian says, I was still too much asleep myself to wish to talk. And I had a presentiment that he would not answer me in any case. Severian really has more presentiments than he calls out, I yeah. think. And yeah. 
that's that would fit with a lot of things we've been yeah. wondering about. <laughs> but there's also the idea that if the dreams really are somehow connected with, as we've talked about before, possibly other cycles or other versions of reality mm-hmm. or or other repetitions or something then yeah they would be presented. yeah yeah it would it would seem like knowing the future when in fact what it is was sort of knowing the pattern or yeah or, or, or remembering it yeah yeah but this one doesn't require special psychic powers well, you know jonas jonas didn't talk all day <laughs> so so varian tries to go back to sleep unsuccessfully he's in that you know again that twilight period in his dream you know we get the powers of his memory uh, certainly the power he believes he has and i think it's real yeah and the other thing too to point out it goes back to something we said before about how severian talks about he doesn't remember his dreams but this is also the case where he doesn't directly call it that but he forgets where he is and who he Mm -hmm. is eventually here a couple times right this is the one chapter where i think we see severian forget over and over and over um it's you know, in in these dreams coming up, he's going to remember and be able to remember very specific details. Oh, yeah. They're not really even like dreams anymore. Oh yeah, and it's and it's heavily emphasized, right? He talks about he, he counts things multiple mm-hmm. times here, so that we we get that sort of heightened that that heightened sense of I know the details and perfect memory. But then he's also at the same time forgetting big context, right? Like literally where he is. So it's kind of cool that he's getting he's had got all these details down right, but he forgets really important things. Right. Too. And and it's a different kind of forgetting, right? Because it's sort of like it's not information he forgets, it's context. Right. It's the whole sort of where he is. Yeah. So here's what he says. He says, I thought of the herd driven through Saltus and counted them from memory. One hundred and thirty seven. Then there were the soldiers who'd come singing up from the guile. The innkeeper had asked me how many there were, and I had guessed at a figure, but I had never counted them until now. <laughs> he might or might not have been a spy. As a listener mentioned before, this is where Severian acknowledges the possibility that the innkeeper was a spy. And now we get some thoughts about life in the tower. And I think that what happens is that Severian in half sleep thinks, I wish Palamon had taught me some skills for sleeping. And then he starts dreaming about the tower and his, you know, twilightly level dreaming mm-hmm. and in his sleep he's count not counting sheep or clients he's just counting steps around the yeah. tower yeah this is master palamon who taught us so much had never taught us how to sleep no apprentice had ever needed to learn that after a day of errands and scrubbing and kitchen work we'd rioted each night for half a watch in our quarters then slept like the citizens of the necropolis until he came to wake us to polishing floors and emptying slops there's a rack of knives over the table where Brother Ibear. I did we ever decide Iber? I would ever, say, I think it's probably Ibear, but that's Ibear. We'll go with French. So there's a rack of knives over the table where Brother Ibear slices meat. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven knives, all with plainer blades than Master Gurlow's. One with a rivet missing from its handle. One with a handle a little burned because Brother Ibear once laid it on the stove. So I think, I think this one with a little, that's a little burned, that's the one that Severian gave to Thecla. Oh, that would be, that would be a cool detail. Because Thecla is about to take over. And um, I think that's what precipitates it. Oh, that's the, leads the association. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Hmm. cool. Yeah. So St. Iber was a Benedictine monk 
uh, who became a hermit. He was known for his venerations of the Virgin Mary. So I guess, you know, that's an association with a guy working in a tower of Holy Catherine, maybe. There's no fantastical stories associated with him that I found. So, but he's still going. He says, I was wide awake again, or thought I was, and I didn't know why. Beside me, draught slumbered undisturbed. I closed my eyes once more and tried to sleep as he did. 390 steps from the ground to our dormitory. How many more to the room where the guns throbbed at the top of the tower? One, two, three, four, five, six guns. One, two, three levels of cells in use in the oubliette. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight wings on each level. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen cells in each wing. One, two, three bars on the little window of my cell's door. This sounds like exhausting level of, of yeah. dreaming. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, <don't, laughs> I would be so ex- tired just trying to dream this way. And then he wakes again. But this time, like we said, with Thecla's memories dominant, he awakes as Thecla and not Severian. I woke with a start and a sensation of cold, but the sound that had disturbed me was only the slamming of one of the hatches far down the corridor. Beside me, my boy lover, Severian, lay in the easy sleep of youth. I sat up thinking I would light my candle and look for a moment at the fresh coloring of that chiseled face. Each time he returned to me, he carried a speck of freedom glowing on that face. Each time I took it and blew upon it and held it to my breast, and each time it pined and died. A pined means lose its figure. It pined and died. She's talking about the spark of freedom that she saw in Severian's face. And I think this gives us some insight into what she saw and loved about Severian. Her feelings, I think, are complicated, though. And I still have to wonder whether her affection could have survived if, you know, he'd helped her escape. But that, you know, that doesn't make the feelings less real. No. And one other thing, too, that it's easy to miss in that last part, because we're conscious that we're switching over to Thecla is what she says wakes her up. She says, I woke with a start and a sensation of cold, but the sound that had disturbed me was only the slamming of one of the hatches far down the corridor. What did she really hear, though? I think she probably heard whatever opened up to let this creature in, right? To well, the yeah. other thing to let her in. But in her, in her, his, her dream state, it gets interpreted as something far down the hallway that opened. Mm -hmm. And we don't know exactly what door it is. We don't even know if it was a real door or a dimensional door or something. So, Haythor, you don't think he called this critter from his mirror sails here in the room? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. That's why I said it could be. I mean, maybe he escaped. I mean, maybe Haythor escaped through that door. You know, he left the little critter and then he took off. Oh, yeah. Could be that that certainly could be it, too. I mean, we don't we literally only know about this because there's a noise that's described in somebody's half dream somewhere right. else. Right. So, you know, I'm assuming that that noise is a real noise that Severian heard and woke up, but he just totally misinterpreted it. But yeah, right. what it is, was it a real door? Was it, like I said, some weird dimensional summoning door? I don't know. Yeah, we don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah. But yeah, so Severian keeps going and he says, yet sometime it would not. And then instead of sinking deeper under this load of earth and metal, I would rise through metal and earth to the wind and the sky. Or so I told myself, if it wasn't true, still the only joy remaining to me was to gather in that speck. 
So uh, yeah, let's read on because these are the only moments that we get perspective from Thecla's unfiltered point of view. And the only thing too, like I said, I, I keep in my head trying to tie everything to Jonas here and to have Thecla here talk about how she has just this tiny little speck of hope and hopelessness because of Severian, because of some kind of love. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's something with Jonas. Like maybe it was for whatever reason, falling in love with Jolenta is part of why he's waking up and feeling yeah. purposeless and something like yeah. that. Um, you know, it, it, at least it fits with Thecla in this point. So, but she says, he says, both of them say, but when I, <laughs> but when I groped for the candle, it was gone and my eyes and my ears and the very skin of my face told me that my cell itself had vanished with it. There was dim light here, very dim, but not the light from the candle of the torturer in the, in the corridor, the light that filtered through the three bars of my cell's hatch. Faint echoes proclaimed that I was in an area larger than a hundred such cells. My cheeks and forehead, which had worn themselves away in signaling the nearness of my walls, confirmed it. I stood and smoothed my gown. I suppose her gown is Severian's fulgent cloak, mm-hmm. right? Yep. I stood and smoothed my gown and began to walk almost as a somnambulist might. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven strides. Then the odor of close-kept bodies and confined air told me where I was. It was the antechamber. So Thecla, who has been in the antechamber, realizes exactly where she is. From her point of view, she's moved from a cell in the Citadel to a cell in the House house Absolute. Yeah, yeah. And also, this is Thecla's point of view recorded by Severian. So he is remembering and recording the number of steps she takes just as he recorded his own steps around the tower. It's an interesting layered narration going on here. Yeah. And it also is weird because I know there are still some people who think that, you know, I've, I've told you a bunch of times, I think that Thecla was in some sense alive inside Severian Mm -hmm. and other people like, no, he just has her memories, her information, but this is Oddly enough, this is Thecla having new memories, right? I mean, this is Severian living as Thecla and Thecla not just, yeah, like she's actually here doing this with Severian right now. So she says, I felt a wrench of dislocation. Had the autarch ordered me carried here while I slept? Would the others spare their lashes when they saw me? So she's actually considering the fact that the other exultants would mm-hmm. be coming in to whip the the you know all of the guests, and yeah, she would little, be among them. Come up and <laughs> of a sort. Yeah, yeah, but it gives an idea of how often they come. They literally That's come almost seems. every yeah. night. That would be yeah. a nice time to have her hide inside Severian. One of those good moments where you know the multiple <laughs> personalities. Time for me to run away. you're on Severian. She says, the door, the door. My confusion was so great I nearly fell, borne down by the jumble of my mind. I wrung my hands, but the hands I wrung were not my own. My right hand felt a hand too large and too strong, and at the same instant, my left hand felt a similar hand. And then the spell is broken, and in kind of a way, Thecla wakes from a dream as herself, Right. And she wakes up and as the, the line Severian. is Thecla fell from me like a dream, or I should say dwindled to nothing and in dwindling vanished within me until I was myself again and nearly alone. Uh, but here's the deal. In that short time that Thecla's mind was dominant, she revealed the way out of the antechamber, the secret door that the young exultants used to enter and exit the room to torture the um, you know guests of the antechamber. 
Severian refers to the whips as, quote, energized lashes of braided wire. And now he can escape in the morning. Heck, he can escape. <laughs> so, tonight. by the way, this is something we need to think about when we go back to the tale of the student of his, and his son, because there's something about being let out of a labyrinth of a sort here that that she her memory is kind of like a, a saving grace, right? That, that lets them out. Yeah. 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 Right. She has the and secret, so that's, right? That's yeah. We'll come back to that. Why, why that's there. But I think later when we talk about the story, but, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's following a lot about the same pattern here. Right. Right. And the little girl comes up to Severian and says, where did the lady go? Uh, did we mention before that the little girl has dark hair? Uh, they, I mean, they could be mm, Korean yeah. or descended yeah, from Korea. Of course, the autochthons also have dark hair, I think. Anyway, the girl says that she just saw a woman wandering around, a tall lady. And she says the lady was, quote, darker than the shadows. Right. Severian's cloak, remember, but maybe it's something else. I don't know. But the girl could tell she was a lady by the way she walked. But when she got up to approach her, only Severian. And I think we are supposed to know that it's literally his blacker than black cloak. But at the same time, I love the idea mm -hmm. that, you know, she's just a shadow walking around. She's not really there. Right. And so then it, it fits so perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is a recurring theme in wolf stories. In the fifth head of Cerberus, VRT's aboriginal mother can make herself young or old just by changing her manners and tensing some muscles. And of course, the abos are a bad example since, you know, some, maybe some yeah, can take the yeah. form of a cat as well. Well, there's Jalenta who can make herself appear especially beautiful because there's a hypnotic suggestion on her that she is irresistible. But I think the best example is in Wolf's late novel, Home Fires. This isn't really a spoiler. In, in this future world, people have their minds scanned at death, as with the Borrowed Man books, and then people will rent out their other people's bodies. Well, people will just, you know, I'm going to rent out my body for a period of time, and then their brains will be physically modified in some way to take on the memories and identity of the dead person. And then after the rental period is over, they'll mush it back the way it was before. Uh, but although they look for people who are kind of sort of similar to the person that they want to be, there's no cosmetic surgery. The final change is caused by the fact that the mind actually believes they are that person. So you know, they appear to be that person by a million little ticks and expressions so that even the woman's own daughter won't recognize mm -hmm. that it's not yeah. physically that person. Yeah. So I think, anyway, I think that this is a... Another yeah. example of that principle. Yeah. And that's, I mean, so much of Long and Short Sun, too, are about copying people, right? And and what does it mm -hmm. mean to be possessed? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So to the little girl's question, you know, about where's the lady? Severian says, I understand, though I doubt you ever will. <laughs> and the little girl says, there's a horrible thing in the dark. And she's afraid of this thing in a different way than the horrible green face that she saw when the exultants came with their whips. This is, quote, a black thing that snuffles in the dark. And Severian says, quote, there's real terror in her voice. She takes his hand and it's shaking. And she says, it's coming along the wall. And then she runs off. But this is interesting. Severian deduces that instead of running back to her mom, she's actually just gone off a distance and she follows Severian and Jonas when they escape 
because he says that since he's been Autark, he's glimpsed her twice since he's returned to House Absolute. And he's he's pretty sure that she's living on stolen food. And he thinks that she might be returning to the antechamber to eat, but she's not going to be able to do that anymore because Severian has very recently ordered that all the prisoners in the antechamber be freed, even though he doesn't expect everyone to leave willingly. Some people he thinks will have to be forced out. So if you're a landlord, you should consider using the term freed from your lease rather than evicted. You know, freed from your lease <laughs> by the sheriffs if necessary. But that hasn't happened yet at the time he's writing this. I, I, I wonder, you know, starting to get into this writing, this part of the memoir, what, whether that was what prompted Severian to order this policy of freeing all the, of the prisoners. You know, maybe he'd forgotten about them until this very moment. <laughs> and he's also ordered that they release Nicorette and have her brought to him. And just that moment, the Chamberlain, who I assume is Odillo, just came in to say that, quote, yeah, which is she fun waited his pleasure. A few times we get narrator Severian actually talking about something he's really doing. But yeah, it seems if that it's really connected to him doing this now, it seems, or at least, you know, he, you know, assuming he right. writes a little bit every day, maybe, you know, it could have been a couple of days ago that he got rid of the antechamber as he remembered. <laughs> we don't, we don't know, but, but it is kind of cool right. now because you get yeah. that sense of now this character is free and is just kind of going to have an exit interview here <laughs> in a second or something. <laughs> unless, unless we're supposed to think there's something else he needs to interview her about, which I don't know. Well, I don't know. Well, you know, he says that the Chamberlain came as he was writing of our, I was writing of our capture a moment ago. And I'd normally assume that he meant that he was writing of their capture by the Praetorians, but I don't think that's what he means because it would mean that he had pulled that poor old woman out of the antechamber only to sit in his waiting room while he finished five chapters. <laughs> I mean, that would be a funny joke though, Severian. I hope Snickerite is going to be told that she'll be responsible for settling the prisoners and teaching them skills. Up till now, they only know how to wait for pastry carts all day long. So can you imagine being dropped into the Commonwealth without any real world skills? But uh, speaking of Jonas, a Severian goes back to him with the little girl watching from a distance and Hathor's black snuffling critter closing in on him. And he again notes that he can see the whites of Jonas's eyes in the dark. Interesting. Yeah. Anyway, Severian now knows how to get out of there. And from the warning by the girl, he knows that the assassin who tried to kill them with the nachos, and they never sit around wondering why an assassin <laughs> would do that, but that same guy has a new critter, and he's there, and he's after them. And if he believes that, he, sh he ought to know that it's Hathor, right? I mean, who else has arrived since they did? But now he knows there's an easy way to get in there. And so he could figure out how he did it. He tells Jonas, you said it was necessary to go if you were to remain sane. Come, the sender of the nuptials, whoever that may be, has laid his hands upon another weapon. I have found the way out and we are going now. So this is a random thing, but we were talking before about Heather's weird little friend, right? And how he shows up here for just a bit, but then disappears. Mm -hmm. What if he actually is these other creatures? Like, what if what if that dude is 
<laughs> well, he couldn't be right. the Nachos. May or yeah, or maybe he can become other things. I don't know. But just the fact that right and shoot, I've suddenly forgotten. It's just Heather who's thrown in here, right? Heather and it's not. It's just Heather. Yeah, he comes, he comes alone. alone, and we yeah, see Heather the dude comes later alone again. Um, yeah, yes, he's hiding but, in the walls. Um, but I, <laughs> that just I just wondered. I was like, well, what if that's just a way that he, I mean, he doesn't talk, right? He never says anything. Well, now we're moving into Hathor's running yeah. around with Zadkiel. No, I don't, I don't so. know, but that just I just yeah, I don't know. I don't know why that popped into my head right now. I got nothing, nowhere to support it, and nowhere to take it, but yeah. Well, you know, we're all grasping to find a story yeah. from poor Buzak. So, but Jonas doesn't move uh, when Severian tells him they have to go. And I mean, either the damage to Robo Jono is so severe or the mental breakdown is too severe on both sides. So, Severian grabs him by the arm and he notes how light he is. And he also has another revelation. Many of those parts of him that were metal must have been forged from those white alloys that deceive the hand by their lightness. For it was like lifting a boy. But the metal parts in his flesh as well had been wetted with some thin slime. My foot found the same filthy dampness on the floor nearby and on the wall itself. Whatever it was the child had warned me of had come and gone while I spoke with her. And it had not been for Jonas that it had searched. Um, first of all, before we go on, that are super white light. alloys, it's like I plastic, maybe. <laughs> but, but I, uh, <laughs> that, yeah, I mean, yeah, mithril's like white, silver, gold, right? Like it's mithril's white. Uh, that's, yeah, that's a good know, point. I mean, it yeah, could maybe, just be a fun. And since you said alloy, that made me think. But otherwise, yeah, yeah, I mean, some kind of super strong light metal. I mean, I assume it's some kind of yeah. space age thing. If you can make a person, out of yeah, it, it doesn't really matter. It's but I just wonder what it meant to yeah. Severian. So the critter has snuffled around Jonas while Severian, as Thecla, walked away. He came to Jonas, drooled all over him, but he wasn't looking for Jonas. So let's uh, let's talk about another thing that's just plain suspicious to me, as most things are in this book. Mm-hmm. The way Severian keeps being roused awake. Yeah. One, I had a sensation of falling, a spasm, instinctive stiffening of a victim cast from a high window, wrenched all my limbs. Two, my my limbs jerked again, and I sat up. Three, I was wide awake again, or thought I was, and he he was still, you know, sort of dreaming. And four, I woke with a start and a sensation of cold, but the sound that had disturbed me was only the slamming of one of the hatches far down the corridor. I'd like to propose, maybe... The reason Severian can't get any sleep is because somebody is rousing him, giving him nudges to wake him up, perhaps so he doesn't get eaten by a monster, or perhaps so he'll wake up as Thecla and walk away and learn what he needs to know. Well, that Maybe is both. your first Severian creeping in there, isn't it? No. There, I, he certainly, <laughs> yes. Well, he's always there. Uh, it's convenient. There, the great thing about the first Severian is that if you need somebody invisible to be <laughs> acting, he's always there. So. The first Severian was at our side all along. The secret entrance is actually, you know, uh, across the room from the door, uh, which was the center of the rearmost wall of the antechamber. Remember, they they when they were originally stationed near the door, and then the people, the young exultants came and he saw like the green face from across the room, right? 
So this door is unlocked by a voice command, a word of power. As Severian says that ancient things are almost always opened that way. And he whispered the word and the door opens and in they go and they didn't bother closing it either. Okay, now we should mention one thing here. I've always said, Craig, that Hathor's critters only seem to drive Severian forward. And this might be a hole in that interpretation since Severian knows already how to get out. Uh, the critter is no help. But uh, on the other hand, maybe Severian wouldn't have escaped so quickly. I don't know. Uh, maybe it would be better if he'd waited. He could have missed the <laughs> boat ride with Jalenta. Jonas is walking on his own now, walking like, quote, a thing, holy metal. So like a robot? Is he all robo Jonah yeah, now? And this could, uh, you know, it's kind of cool because the way Wolf's writing it is when you first read it, it seems like, oh, he's he's in a trance. He's walking robotically and stiffly and whatnot. When what it really could be is that he's becoming more natural to himself and he's he's forgetting the more human ways he moved and is thinking is feeling more comfortable with the robots. The human parts are taking over and are learning how to walk in those ways. Yeah. Um, and because they left it open and the little girl was listening to Severian, she knows, you know, how to open and close it whenever she wants. And presumably, you know, Hathor, who, if he's still there and watching nearby, he knows how to escape, or maybe he already has. So the passage takes them to, quote, a narrow stairway festooned with the webs of pale spiders and carpeted with dust that led by circuitous turnings downward. Uh, Thecla's memories recall the stairs, but nothing of what was beyond it. She she didn't have perfect memory, uh, but, you know, Saran didn't care. Uh, the pale spiders suggest spiders that have evolved to be like yeah, cave spiders totally or something. Totally in the dark. Right? right. And the stairs take you to the other secret doors. And maybe the reason Thecla doesn't know, you know, what's at the bottom of the stairs is because, you know, maybe she entered at the first of the secret and doors we below. should know, too, that this is Severian going into the second house, right? The secret house. So this is, he right. doesn't, he'll get a name for that later, but this is part of that intricate, intricate, hidden side of the house, absolutely. Absolutely. But Severian, you know, he isn't going to try any of those doors because he's afraid they're going to bump into someone as soon as it opens. So they just keep going down. And Severian wants to be as far away from the antechamber as he can get before he meets anyone. So, you know, they go maybe a hundred steps down and they come to a door with, quote, a crimson teratoid sign that appeared to me to be a glyph from some tongue beyond the shores of Earth. Let's see. Uh, teratoid means abnormal. Uh, actually, it literally means monstrous-like. If H.P. Lovecraft had written this story, he'd have just said that the symbol was unnameable. Yeah. The only other thing I thought was cool is that teratoid can also sometimes be a medical term, that it means like a weird tumor. Like, I mean, I figured all, yeah, all tumors are kind of weird, but it's also specifically a term for really weird tumors. <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> abnormal, yeah. right? So this is the second such sign that we've come upon in the novel, at least. There was uh, Agia's uh, symbol, that might have been a map or the face of Jurapari. And now this. And there's no doorknob or latch. 
Severian hears footsteps on the stairs somewhere. So he leans against the door and it feels heavy at first, but then it opens. And Jonas follows and the door shuts suddenly on its own. He, he feels like that heavy door should have you know, made a loud slam, but there's no sound. So now they're in this room and it's dim, but the light slowly brightens automatically. There's no reason to waste electricity in lighting this rooms that no one's using. Just tiny thing, but it's exactly how the lights work in Long Sun. You know, when they, when they get into the, yeah, into yeah, the caves. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Severian checks that they're alone says, and then he checks out Jonas. still fixed as it had been when he sat with the wall of the antechamber at his back. Yet it was not the lifeless thing I had feared. It was the face almost of a man about to wake and tears had left moist furrows down his cheeks. Sheesh. Mm-hmm. Jonas has been crying. Severian says, do you know me? And Jonas nods. Still not speaking, Severian says, I must recover Terminus Est if I can. I've run like any coward, but now that I've had a chance to think, I see I must go back for her. My letter to the Archon of Thrax was in her scabbard pocket, and I couldn't bear to part with her anyway. But if you want to try to escape this place, I'll understand. You're not bound to me. Before we talk about Jonas here... This is one of the many times where Severian like gets out of trouble and then is like, no, I must get Terminus S back. And the question right. I would have at this point is, okay, why? Like, like, especially the, <laughs> he's had, right. he's but also, two weeks, I mean, I right? think he's still holding on to that dream of going to Thrax and playing out this thing. But at the same time, he's gotten caught up mm-hmm. in so much stuff that, I mean, I, I get that he really wouldn't have any kind of direction or life at all if he lost that symbol, right? Like that's pretty much the one of the only things that proves right. that he is who he is. So it's it's a marker of his identity too. Like it's it's almost like saying I've got no reason mm-hmm. to live if I don't have this other thing. And that's basically what he's what he's saying is that he he would rather go back and die and be captured again than live without it. Um and that's pretty strong. I mean, and that's, that's what he's proven over and over again. I know, but it seems like right here, it's even more uh, pressing, but it's like, I've gotten Jonas out, but now I've got a, I realized that I still have to go have this thing or else I'm nobody. And yeah, it's almost like he sees him. He sees himself as a character in an ancient story that he has this symbol and he's, he's not the person in this story, if he doesn't have mm-hmm. that symbol. Yep. yep. Well, and in this world and the way that it seems to work, it's pretty much true because he couldn't function yeah. as a Carnifex without his sword. And, um, and then also, like he says, the other things in the pocket are important, like the letter. Right. And, yeah. yeah. His letter. Yeah. Right. So, but yeah, anyway. Okay. So, so, but the one other thing, just thematically to, to join that Jonas and Severian are kind of doing the same thing right here like when Severian says I've got to go back to the sword because that's who I am and I have to get it that's pretty much what Jonas is saying here too he's like in order to be who I really am I have to leave you and I have to run from this other place and go do whatever I'm going to do so it's yeah. kind of cool we're, that we're, we don't really know what he's searching right for. we don't we know Severian's looking for a sword yeah. but even just the the line I know we're going to say it in a second but I'll come back when I'm whole and sane um mm-hmm. but that's kind of saying i'm gonna go risk a crazy journey maybe um for the same reason to be who i really am so they're both 
doing the same thing here. Well, yeah, no, that's a good point. And yeah, what Jonas actually does at this point is he just points one arm stiffly at the folding panels in the middle of the room. And he says, I know where we are. And so do we. A first-time reader will have to recall the story that Thecla told at the very end that was recounted in the Botanical Gardens, the story of Domnina. They are in Father Neri's presence chamber. These are the magical fish-creating mirrors. And for a first-time reader, that's all they are. Although Domnina said she fell into one. So there are hints that they are more than mirrors. And Severian says, okay, okay, you know where we are. Where are we then? And Jonas says, on Earth. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> and now that answer is one that goes a long way to people saying, like a, we talked a lot um, a couple episodes ago where people were saying that maybe what Jonas has done is he didn't realize he was on Earth, right? And mm -hmm. I think that this line would be the best place to support you for that to, because it's almost like saying he's saying on Earth is to kind of emphasize that for Severian um, yeah. as if like that was news maybe to Severian. But yeah. Well, maybe on Earth means something very specialized to Jonas means these that these particular uh, these particular mirrors are really for Jonas out there you know in the stars the only thing right. that matters on right Earth. and right and that's more what I was going to get to is maybe it's not that he's just realized that but maybe it's like him saying you know where are you and like let's say you're at the, in a subway right and you're going to say where are you you're going to mention the name of the stopping right. place where you are, right? Like the exit, whatever. So this is kind of like his, you know, transit. This is like, I'm going to go to Grand Central Station, but right now I'm at the, you know, the, I don't know, 28th Street Junction. Yeah, yeah. You would, you say, you say, you, you like, like Grand Central mm -hmm. Station. And you say, I know where I am. I'm in New York City. Well, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's almost like Jonas, you know, up to now he's been, whole, whatever the whole meant, you know, he's been one voice and now he's like a shattered person. And it used to be that Jonas, it was obvious Jonas could give useful information, but he chose not to. And now, you know, his, his information isn't all that useful because he's, he's a yeah. bunch of different voices speaking in different and, contexts. I mean, we're, we'll talk about well, let's, let's actually, let's keep going. Let's, because there's some, after, after a few more things, then I can connect maybe one more dot. So, okay. Okay. Oh, yeah. 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 Right. So, you know, everything we decide about Jonas, I'll say again, depends on yeah. who you believe is talking at any moment. Yeah. So, right. Let's finish this. So Jonas walks to the eight folded panels described by Domnina that are at the center of the room. Outside of the panels, we are now told, are, quote, set with clustered diamonds and enameled work, such twisted signs as had been on the door. Yeah. In other words, like and, symbols from another it seem alien cult too, culture right? like or something. It's like inscribed with symbols rather than technology, right. but, we've, but we have no real idea. Yeah. Exactly. And Jonas just opens a couple panels open. He has been walking around rigid like a robot, but... That's all gone now. Jonas is back, baby. And it's only at this point that Severian gets that the prosthetic hand is the flesh hand. 
and what he meant when he said that his face had been destroyed when his ship crashed. question, though, I wonder if Jonas really is back. I just wanted to look at it. But this really is a question because I don't know. But um, the rigidity I had remarked in him only a moment before was gone, yet he had not returned to his old self. It was, but then he keeps, it's what he, the way he says it, he says, it was then that I knew. And he means then that what he knew was that he was robot primarily and had been fixed. And because he says, we've all watched someone who's lost one hand as he had and replaced it with a hook or some other artificial contrivance, perform some task that involves both his real hand and the artificial one. So it was with Jonas when I watched him pull back the panels, but the, but the prosthetic hand was the hand of flesh. When I understood that, I understood what he had said much earlier, that in the wreck of his ship, his face had been destroyed. So that's where he really realizes, oh, robot side of Jonas is the real thing. And so that's where he says the rigidity that he had used to seen was gone. And so, but he wasn't back to his old self. Instead, what I think it's saying is that Jonas had somehow reverted to robot Jonas taking over. And I think that's, this is kind of where I'm going with Jonas right now is that somehow before his human side had in some way been in charge. And is that, so you think maybe while they're going down the stairs and he's walking kind of like a robot, that's kind of what I was kind of thinking. His human side is in, is in charge. And it's only now that that the robot has... And that gets back to just how we were just talking about how when Thecla is really Thecla, all of Severian's mannerisms are hers, right? And that's what makes her who she is seem Mm -hmm. just like like to the little girl. He looks completely like a tall lady um, because of everything about him. That when, when his head is switched, every part of him from his behavior to his physical side is really switched to. And you've got the same thing happening here with Jonas, where now that rigidity has gone, like it's not clumsy anymore, but it's not old Jonas. It's somebody else. And, and it's really like by the sort of logic of that whole thing that he set up by, you know, Thecla is Thecla when I'm Thecla because of how she makes me act. That means I'm really Thecla then. Same thing here. Jonas is really now kind of a different person, maybe back to the old original robot person. Um, and he can tell by how he moves. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, dominant, but I think it's the robot like that thing about Thecla point. really pushed it home to me that that's kind of how Wolf is really talking about like identity here is by all those little subtle things too. Mm-hmm. That that's what you can really tell. So that's what I think here is yeah. that whatever this robot side has come in and has been like, you know what, this has all been a mistake, right? He's like, I need to, I need to get out. <laughs> and I had maybe let myself get caught up with this world and let that human side take over. Um, but that's not who I really am. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, let, let, let's, let's go on and we'll see that. Uh, apparently, you know, when they crashed, his robot eyes had been damaged. And yeah. they, so that's why yeah. they really needed the face. They needed the flesh eyes to replace those. And so they just gave him the man's face. And when, but mm-hmm. he still sleeps every night. <laughs> right, right. And I that. think that goes it's with the whole the identity face, thing too, right? Right. Like, I mean, when you have body parts of in this world, you still have the tiny bit that holds the whole thing. Like, like the Alzabo can work that way. So even just mm-hmm. taking that it's, it, it, they wouldn't have had to take his whole brain. 
in order for that to work in this world. Right. It's, it's got something there. Um, and so I think kind of the idea you can even think here is that fundamentally having all that stuff and having to act like a human, um, made Jonas just kind of fit into this world and be like, okay, in fact, he's, because now he's going to talk about, you know, your, your kind, right. He finally starts to talk about humans as, as your kind rather than me. Um, and so now he switched back to being like, ah, I've got to fix myself and I've got to be whole and really myself again. Um, and to do that, I gotta leave. I gotta get back. So. Yeah. So Severian, uh, yeah, Severian marks about his eyes. Mm-hmm. That's why they, you know, that's what you meant. That's they needed to replace the eyes. And Jonas looks at him like, "Oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot you were there." <laughs> and here he says plainly, "What I had forgotten when we started this reread." Jonas says, "He was on the ground. We killed him by accident coming in. I needed his eyes and larynx, and I took some other parts." Severian says, so that's why you were able to tolerate me, a torturer. You're just a machine. And Jonas says, no, you are no worse than the rest of your kind. Remember that for years before I met you, I had become one of you. Now I am worse than you. You would not have left me, but I am leaving you. Now I have the chance, and it's the chance I sought for years as I went up and down the seven continents of this world, seeking the Hyroduels and tinkering with clumsy mechanisms. So, yeah, so Severian seems to associate Jonas's decision to leave through the mirrors with his own leaving of the Madison Tower, and, mm-hmm. and, and he gets it. But um, this is interesting. So here we, we get a revelation that Jonas has been wandering around the entire Earth looking for Hierogeles and tinkering with clumsy mechanisms, I suppose, you know, trying to create yeah. communication devices yeah. and stuff. Or this thing, these mirrors, trying to get some kind of travel thing like this, right? Yeah. yeah. But, but, you know, Severian had to leave the Mashin Tower, and he, he understands why Jonas has to leave. He says, I thought of all that had happened since I had carried the knife to Thecla. And though I did not follow everything he said, I told him, if it is your only chance, then go. And good luck. If I ever see Jolenta, I will tell her you once loved her and nothing more. He's not going to tell Jolenta that he was a robot. But Jonas just shakes his head. And Severian does, you know, you Severian just doesn't get it. I will come back for her when I have been repaired, when I am sane and whole. And the big question here is, who wants to come back? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what does it mean to be whole again as a robot? I mean, what is what value is there for Jonas as a robot to come back to? to yeah, but I, th- I think I that's what we have to say and that... So, I, yeah, I think the question is is really then what value is there for him? Like not not what could there possibly be, but like there is something and we're just missing it. <laughs> like, I don't know, maybe the, the robot can be in love, maybe. Or um, I mean, so many people want to talk about how the reason he falls for her is because she's you know not completely human anymore herself. And that that could mm-hmm. be. Um, but I'm yeah, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Well, I reasonably asked, you know, maybe it's the other part of him talking at that point. Who's going to come back? And that's certainly what Jonas thinks or what Severian thinks with Miles, right? That somehow Miles came back as the full person he was before. And but too late because Jonas, his Jalinta has died. But I still so I still have some 
questions here about, you know, exactly what he means by that. I mean, obviously he loves Jolenta and something he wants to do is go back when he can be in love with her for like a true way. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, Right. Truly right. win her but, over. But right? I still am. Yeah, I still am a little confused over why Jolenta um, and what that's supposed to tell us about identity and what it means to be human. And the, right. there, there's still some some of the bigger picture stuff I'm still trying to puzzle out. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Jonas steps into the center of the panels and the bright white blue light above his head comes on. And I think for me, that white blue light is, yeah. is significant claw to me. Light. It's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's, I think it's the yeah. same light yeah. of the claw. Yeah. I, that's, that's what I believe. So he says how foolish to call them mirrors. They are to mirrors as the enveloping firmament is to a child's balloon. They reflect light indeed, but that I think is no part of their true function. They reflect reality, the metaphysical substance that underlies the material world. Jonas closed the circle and moved to its center. For perhaps the time of the briefest prayer, something of wires and flashing, metallic dust danced above the tops of the panels before all was gone and I was alone. And that, Craig, is the last we're going to see of Jonas. Until, in a sense, you know, Severian encounters him near the beginning of, of the Autark. And this is, you know, another structural interpretation of the book. This chapter is called The Mirrors because of Father Aniri's mirrors and Hathor's mirrors that he's using to summon monsters with, supposedly, his mirror sails. And this is where both Hathor and Jonas take their exit. Maybe Jonas is working for Severian behind the scenes in the same way Hathor is working against him or for him. This is another hint, potentially, that Jonas and Hathar are in some way equivalent. Both sailors, both servants of Severian, both marooned, both highly sexually driven. I don't know. But I have a theory about this final scene. I think it matters, like I said, who at any moment is the motivator. Before they, they came to the antechamber, when... Severian spoke to Jonas. It was always just Jonas, whatever that was. And something happens in that antechamber, and the two personalities begin to split apart, to cleave. So um, here's my interpretation. Almost everything he said about wandering the whole earth, looking for the Rodules, and tinkering with crude mechanisms is, I suppose, you know, make chip or contact the Hyros. That's Robojono. And when he looks at Severian, he says, I'll come back for Jolenta when I've been repaired, when I'm sane and whole. That's Biojono. He's been drifting silently in the background for however long since the crash. Maybe, you know, it's been since the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, or maybe the the listener is is right that the DPRK took over the whole world and that's the meaning of Syriaca's story. But all that time, he's been drifting along, adding a little something-something to the whole. And when he sees Jalinta, a supercharged, erotic being, it jumpstarts something inside him. And when he sees these people living in a dark room under the antechamber, that's what he's been. And that's the meaning of the breakdown. 
this feels a little weird coming for me because it's a little too close <laughs> to a symbolic metaphorical explanation rather than a Rube Goldberg series of events that are disguised as a metaphor. But this is a, you know, a psychological breakdown and symbolism matters and metaphor matters. The breakdown started when Jonas met Jalenta, I think. The anti-chamber accelerator, and maybe the damage to Robojono let Biojono be a bigger proportion of the whole. And then there's the healing of the clock. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with most of that. Yeah, and I think that's probably the most satisfying explanation of why he broke down, um, at least to me, because it, mm -hmm. it has enough things. The only difference I would say is that I think it's still probably Robo Jonas who's in love with Jolenta. Um, just the only reason I say that is at least textually is because he says, I'll come back for her when I am sane and whole. And that to me, he's been talking about when I get repaired and right. And it's just, it's, but is he, I mean, that's just, well, I mean, there's so many oh, ways yeah. to, there's so many ways to be sane and whole either. Both of them yeah, are neither. Yeah. Of them are and sane it, it and could whole, be, really. Both. I mean, it could be that there maybe there's maybe they're both. Well, I mean, the other thing I was wondering is there's something, or is there something about Jalenta who she is a mix of personalities? Like, is there mm -hmm. something else? Hmm. I mean, we talk about the way that Talos messed with her as being very. Um, you know, physical somehow, but was, was all that stuff they talk about hypnotic suggestion and whatnot. What if, I don't know if there's enough to do, but what if there's part of the reason it works is because of, I don't know, some AI something. And so robo Jonas mm. connects to the AI, but the, the human Jonas connects to the, the physical, beautiful one. I don't know. I don't, that seems like a stretch, but the only reason I, but the reason I like that is because, there's this cool mixture of almost some kind of like platonic thing where you have intellectual and physical things mixed together uncomfortably. Um, and, mm -hmm. and it's almost like Jonah saying, Oh, if I could just be pure robot, I'd be a higher form maybe. And then if there's something about falling mm -hmm. in love with Jalenta, that there's some kind of lust and love separation. I don't know. I don't know. I'm still throwing out ideas there, but, but I just, that's the only part yeah, that yeah. still bugs me about. Otherwise I think that everything you said seems exactly right. Um, Except I'm ex 180. Well, no, 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 no. That's just, that's just <laughs> one part of it though. Cause I think otherwise the, the thing is, is right. and I wish, I wish we had two different names. I wish we had a robot Jonas name and then, yeah, yeah, which, yeah, it'd be yeah. great names. But, yeah. So I'm, yeah, I'm still, I feel like I've got the shape of Jonas's story, but there are still things I need to, to fill in over pieces of it. And it's like, oh, uh, if I knew that Miles mm -hmm. really was connected to Jonas, that would be super helpful. Um, because, and yeah, and understand how yeah, that could possibly yeah, be. Um, but I mean, he does throw the line in here that something the mirrors represent reality, like the metaphysical reality. That's that's the thing that made me start thinking about Plato and like the difference between ideas or pure forms and pure matter. Like something about these mirrors, when you transfer to a higher plane like Yassad, you're closer to a 
pure form or a pure soul or something. And maybe the robots, I mean, according to Syriaka's story, it's almost like the AIs that go off are in some sense more evolved or they're, they're higher up the food chain or maybe closer to angels or something. But there's, there's some kind of suggestion here that maybe part of Jonas's problem is that he is some higher ideal being mixed with a human who is a lower physical being and that that's there's not just a sort of physical cure of the person and the robot that's going on here, but also some kind of spiritual or metaphysical cleaning that's going to happen. I mean, it's just the way Jonas reacts. It seems like that's, that's kind of how he's, what he's suggesting when he talks about your kind and all this kind of stuff. Um, Right. But yeah, but how to actually spell that out. I'm not, I'm still not really sure, but I, I feel like, I'm kind of like, if I could answer that question, I feel like I'd understand more about like what Yesed's relationship to Briah is and what the Hyro's mm-hmm. relationship to humans would be just because I feel like whatever Jonas is, is not just metaphorically, but maybe also kind of very similar to like, if you had a Yasadi mixed with a human or mixed with a Briya person yeah. um, that he's not, it, he's not just robot, but something about these kinds of robots are actually more evolved, more or higher. Um, and but, that's not yeah. something that I necessarily had thought before. I think before I was just like, Oh, an Android part, Android part human. But I think there are all kinds of suggestions <laughs> here that there's something more sort of, I mean, spiritual, but maybe even spiritual in quotes, like just higher plane and lower plane or something going on with them. Right. Well, you know, the, the, well, the, I think as Wolf presents them in this book, AIs are would be naturally, in some it sense, higher like, yeah. than humans because they were made by humans to embody all the qualities that humans found yeah. to be ideal. Yep. And right? I still like that Sidero, he says, too, that robots in that world, they're – they're just as moral and they're, they're capable of making the wrong decision and of doing things for the wrong reason. But he says they just can't lie to themselves mm-hmm. about the reasons for it. And it's like, you know, that's, that's kind of a cool thing where it's like on the one hand that is better because you can't be totally self-deceptive, but it's still not pure. It's like, you can still do something, but it's, it's right. better. It is better. It is, it is higher. I feel like, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think yeah. so, but is it is a little something a little psychotic about saying yeah. I know what I'm yeah. doing is is it's wrong but, really awful, but I'm going, to do, anyway. but I'm going yeah. to do it anyway. Yeah. On this subject, Michael Andre Derisi suggested on Reddit that what Jonas is pointing at is not the mirrors at all, but the screens with the teratoid characters on them. Right. And also he's throwing down the gauntlet here. He rejects entirely the idea that Jonas was ever on the Zad kill. I, mm-hmm. the, you know, the ship that takes Severian to Yesid. Because um, he says he has no experience with backwards time travel. And the truth is, I, I find that appealing, mm-hmm. but probably for different reasons. Yeah, I think, I think maybe his ship was just one of those ships that got lost in the stars. The, the Zad kill could right. never get lost in the stars, it's too, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing. Zad kill ship is... I, I've never bought the idea that there is only one ship in Zadkill because Zadkill seems like it's too special. It serves a specific yeah, purpose and it's not just traveling all over the place. But Yeah, yeah. And 
But that means also since since Hathor has these sails, I would guess that means that the other interstellar mm-hmm. ships have those sails too. And that complies with Ineri's claim that, that the mirror technology was used itself yeah. for interstellar yep. travel. And that makes the most sense to me because right. it's that's his, I mean, plus two, especially a good, you know, when you're talking space opera at the time, everybody had to have their one cool way of doing interstellar travel, right? And and I mean, we get the explanation right. of it yeah. in that we puzzled over in the mirror chapter. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and I certainly don't think that his ship that crashed with us at field, that can't be. But anyway, Michael takes it further than that. He denies Jonas has any knowledge of Aniri's mirrors. I think this might be a bold claim, but um, we'll, we'll just leave that <laughs> to fight among the commenters. Uh, but Michael wants to take this further. He has suggested that the territory character Severin thinks comes from another world are, in fact, from an earlier time, Robo Joe's original era, the time presumably in the time of the Galactic Empire. So maybe Robo Jono is saying, I-, I know where we are on Earth because the science is something like linking Earth to Yessa, you know, in, in the way mm-hmm. like a subway sign. Or he might be saying, you know, on Earth because he recognizes the writing system yeah. from his early days on Earth. In fact, uh, Neil San Pedro thinks the characters are Korean or Japanese characters. I'm not so sure I, I think that because we know that those mirrors, based on the short story, The Cat, it, are not like mm-hmm. portals from one place to another. You, you walk in them, and according to Adela, you get circumfused to the borders of Bria. You become everywhere, I would, I, my interpretation is, and anywhere. You become like a, like light that is sometimes a wave mm-hmm. and sometimes a particle. Um, I, I would say that you, you could appear any time if you knew yeah. what you were doing. But the only way to get out would be if someone, right. you know, fishes you out. And like, the quarters of time to work the same way. Yeah. Yeah. And the quarters of time. Exactly. So I'm not sure that it would, it, he knows about it because of, because of the signs are saying, you know, you're on earth. So now let me take one last summarizing shot okay. at Jonas. Curiositas Urthus. This is, I admit, based on my own consensus idea of how Aniri's mirrors work and who Miles is and what it means when Jonas says that he's going to come back repaired. I don't think he means I'll go back to Yesa and get patched up. I know many, probably most people think that. I think Jonas is losing it in the antechamber, not directly to being in the antechamber with all these people. I think that he's been damaged by the Praetorian and now his bio personality that's been kept nicely in the background and integrated with Robo Jono as a singular personality is coming apart. That's how he's going sane. And the knowledge that the antechamber is not a place that anybody leaves, that's not helping. He sees this as a problem anyway, but he's not, but he's just not able to deal with it in his cool, collected self anymore because, you know, he's definitely not collected. Yeah. So I disagree with Michael and others. I don't think Jonas is pointing at the characters on the screen. I think the mirrors are not portals where you enter here and exit. Yes. I think Jonas, probably the bio half of him, plans 
to affect his bio life from Mirror World. And this is the timeline. Bio Jono realizes that he knows Severian. He knows him from that time that he was resurrected in the war in the North as Miles. And by some bizarre path that we can only guess at, that soldier Miles has wandered around and ended up who knows how long in the past. Not so long ago that there, you know, there wasn't an antechamber for, you know, some of the sailors to get trapped in, but a long time ago. So Miles, the man resurrected by Severian, and now in the past, finds himself looking up as Robo Jono's ship is crashing down. And then he becomes merged with the robot because they need the parts. So Jonas's plan is to link up with Miles just as he's rescued and have him go out and find Jolenta and win her heart. Unfortunately, as Jonas steps into the mirror, Jolenta only has a few days left to live. And that's what he discovers when Severian resurrects him. Severian tells him, sorry, uh, <laughs> Jonas, but you you missed your chance. She's, she's died. You're going to have to find another way. And fortunately, we know from Domnina that there is another way. There's maybe an infinite number of other ways. Domnina from another universe was fished out of Father Aniri's mirrors, so Jonas can be as well. In fact, maybe Jonas has all infinite iterations of the universes to choose from. How else could you know an alternate Domnina have ended up on Father Aniri's hook? So Jonas is going to keep trying. Maybe Jonas will find a way to lead miles to Jolinta's dead body and resurrect her in, in some form. Maybe he'll move on to another universe and prevent Jolinta from ever encountering Talos. I don't know. A, a lot of times when I find myself supposing these long stories that are often equated to <laughs> fan fiction, but, but for me, fan fiction is something different from what I'm doing. This is a story Wolfhead is his head, and I'm just trying to figure out what the heck it is. Well, so one thing that's cool about that is that it actually kind of lines up with first Severian because now you're kind of talking about there being a first Jonas and a, or a first miles, right? Like there, there's the idea that he could possibly, especially if that he could possibly step outside of time and, and redo parts of himself or try and <clears throat> like you said, get miles to, to bump into Jolenta, but that's, that's kind of cool. Like it's the idea that, that what the cycles of this lets you do is sort of look back on all your choices in your life and hopefully try to change things. I mean, it's sort of like a, a groundhog day kind of moral, I guess that there's, there's a way you could, you know, be altering things a little bit, but, um, and especially if, like you said, the sales aren't like portals that just move you from one place to another, but but actually kind of take you outside, then that would make sense. Because mm -hmm. when you're outside of time, it's not just that you can go back at different points. It's literally that you can you kind of become, I don't know, in some ways de-individuated and you become more eternal or something like that. And And so that would make sense why Miles and Jonas are the same, but not the same at the same time. And that's, that's, that's really interesting. So, I mean, again, yeah, yeah, it is still a lot of speculation stacked on each other, but what I just think that's really interesting at how closely that kind of matches with some of the ideas of what's first Severian is about that. Maybe Jonas is kind of doing something like that for himself. And it'd be interesting if yeah, Miles was actually the original one and Jonas has come after. Um, yeah. 
I it, it would be it would be far more perfect for me if it explained the parallels between Jonas and Hathor. Maybe mm-hmm. I don't have that, but you know, I, I feel like it's true to the story, and I think it clarifies for me Jonas's motivations in going into the mirror. And, and it also uh, kind of explains a little bit more about his personality, like why he is normally so kind of cool and collected. And it's because maybe he does have some sense of, you know, perspective on some of this stuff. And and uh, I don't know. Well, maybe I, I don't know. I mean, it, you got to mix up like exactly where things happen when. But yeah. But also, why why does he become uh, yeah, friend? Yeah, yeah. So and quickly. I think one reason why so many people are attracted to Jonas is because he does seem very sort of cool and level headed when all this other stuff is going mm-hmm. on and somehow grounded, right? I mean, that's one of the things that seems so nice about him in the beginning was that he's the first sort of non weird character, right? I mean, like as a yeah. personality that that we find. Yeah, he seems. Yeah, he seems the one person who has a grasp yeah. on what's going on, and we feel like he's going to be our guide. Unfortunately, we only get to see him for you know what right. sixteen chapters, right. and we become really close to him in this short yeah. amount of time, and then he starts to yeah. break apart, and it's but yeah, it's kind of heartbreaking. That, and that's a really interesting way to put it together and I, I i like it i like it i mean i do as always it depends on on multiple ifs but but i think that what i like about this one is how much it could kind of explain about his character instead of just leaving things confusing um because that's you know that's what bugs mm-hmm. me about so many of the answers to why does he go crazy because it just they they just don't match up for me it doesn't seem like it yeah just the the robot part or the bio part i don't know which one is which but in the way that this story is told where he's actually going through his own larger drama like that, the, about like trying to, to find himself and find his proper place in time and whatnot. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And just to clarify, I, th- it's not even really dependent on this, but it is my opinion that the, the splitting between Robo Jonas and, and bio Jonas is happening earlier. It happens when the Praetorians mm-hmm. wound him so badly and then, you know, he's got a lot of other pressures going on at the same time. So naturally, he sounds, yeah. you know, desperate. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah, and would also be interesting if when he talks about going sane, it's not just him remembering the real circumstances, but that his actual personality is more of a melding of personalities. And maybe what's happening is he's splitting a little bit. And that's why he's, quote unquote, going sane is because he's remembering his two yeah. distinct, his robot part and his bio part. But the real Jonas is somehow a mix of that instead of being, which is just a cool idea because it's more like the real person is not the original person, like in either way, which is not at all how mm-hmm. we think about it. Right. Normally we think right. that no identity is the, the one that you start with and you always start with the whole thing. But how cool is it that here you have possibly a story where there's the robot person and the bio person, but the real person that they were supposed to become was someone else. That's a combination of the two of them, which is crazy. But this going sane means to sort of be a less person. That's really cool. That's really interesting idea. Hmm. Yeah. And I think, I think it is clear that the Jonas, the Jonas that has been, that got off of the wreck ship, and was repaired. He's never been to House mm-hmm. Absolute. 
So if he does recognize the mirrors, and you know, obviously that's not the only interpretation, then it's not the mm-hmm. robot that recognizes it. It seems like it makes more sense if it's the the bio person who recognizes it. And if you do connect Miles to some to some guy standing on the ground hundreds of years, a thousand years earlier, then yeah, yeah he would have to have a story like that. That's right. Interesting. Yeah. Right. I'm intrigued. Let yeah. the fight begin. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we're not done with Jonah, maybe, but it's going to be very metaphorical. We're going, to, we're going to be doing the tale of the student and his son, the story that we skipped over. And, you know, I think we should expect to find Jonas there. But still, I think we've got enough to work with, really, to piece together Jonas's story, if it can be pieced together. So if you've got something, I sure do hope you'll reach out to us uh, with your ideas and other comments, your thoughts, your corrections and complaints, and that you will bring them to us on the Facebook group, the subreddit, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, email, or the Patreon site. And you can find out how to do all that on the show notes. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your wolf reading friends. And until you hear from us next, may the Moira favor you. And may you be sane and hope. <laughs> he seems to be completely unreceptive. The tests I gave him show no sense at all. His eyes react to light, the dial's detected. He hears but cannot answer to your
<laughs> one day. <laughs> Settings still sound okay? Still sound good? Okay. All right. You sound great. All right. You sound so, really good. Let's do it for real. <sighs> You'd be surprised what I can <laughs> oh, associate. I'm not surprised. I know you. So, all right. So I have, I have a theory. Does this count as a curiositus earthus? I guess it can. Uh, this is such a curiositus earthus. It has to be, yeah, because we it's, haven't done one in a while. It's been a few, a few episodes. Well, this one is on this curiositus earthus aisle. This one is going right on the end where everyone will see it. So, okay, it's a hold big on. I gotta one. come. So, give me just one second. I'll be right back. Got to do one thing. Sorry, dog issues. Okay. Sorry, one more sip. I've had a dry mouth all day long, and I don't know. I, I've got this. I've, it looks like I got three, like three versions here. We might kick this out. I haven't reread this in a while. Oh, wait, I've already said this. Blah, blah, blah. Maybe you don't have to put that in the other one. Okay, wait, wait. Let's, yeah, let's, go let's try this. Because I think there's, yeah. Okay. I don't necessarily see... A dog. Um, I don't necessarily see a really big split in Wolf, but... But Hathor's ship did have pets. And he has, I suppose, you know, pieces of snail. So... These, you know, interstellar ships that get lost between the stars, I think they had sail technology because they had pets and they had sails. Yeah, we, we may not get this out. I, the way I'm seeing things, we're probably not going to get it out until next Sunday, but that's okay. People are kind We've been so going far. slow and so. 